see you this morning. You know, it's wonderful to look out and see a sea of happy faces, smiling faces. It's a real joy. Uh, for some of you older ones amongst us, you will probably remember a song that was made famous in 1969. Actually, I didn't realise it was the, the year that June and I got married, but in 1969, by a very famous singer called Frank Sinatra. You've heard of Frank Sinatra? Raise your hand. And he sang a, a hit song, and it was called, I Did It My Way. And the lyrics of the first verse go like this, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've travelled each and every highway. And much more, much more than this, the punchline, I did it my way. A great song, a great singer, but I trust that these lyrics, which would reflect the heart of many unbelievers as they walk through their life on this earth, doing it their way. For, for us as believers, as Christians, that should not be how we live our lives. It should not be the theme or the ideology. I pray for us when, as the song speaks of facing the final curtain, we will be able to say with God's grace, we did it Christ's way. And I read that, by the way, that was not prophetic. I don't think I'm quite near the final curtain yet, but you don't know. We speak of ourselves, don't we, of being Christian. But the word Christian is both a noun and an adjective. Now, for some of us who years ago went to school, probably not sure what a noun and an adjective is, perhaps forgotten. All those children are still at school. You all know what it is, don't you? You know it's a... But it's a noun, as a noun, a name, it identifies all those who follow Jesus. So as Christians, we are those identified as followers of Jesus. But it is also an adjective because it describes the life of Jesus. When we speak of following Jesus, the Bible makes it clear that to be a follower of Christ is not a matter just of identification with a religious group that are called Christians, but followers in the way and the life of Christ, to be disciples of Christ, living like Christ, both in character and service, all aspects of what we see in Christ. So the words of this song should be completely contrary to the thinking of how we as Christians live our lives. Our lives should not be characterised by doing life our way, but Christ's way. So the title for this morning's message is Doing Christ's Work in Christ's Power in Christ's Way. And so I want to look at the final words of Jesus before he ascended to heaven, before he ascended to the Father. We read those in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Recorded by Luke, but the, these words are the words of Jesus. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and Samaria and to the end of the earth. By the way, I was just reading about this. There is now, even, even on the moon, there is a miniature Bible that some, one of the astronauts took to the, to the moon. So it's not only here, but it's even in, on the moon. Jesus, before going to the Father, instructs the apostles to remain in Jerusalem and to wait for the Father's promise that was to send and baptise them in the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples not just to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, but he tells the disciples the very purpose of them receiving the Holy Spirit. The purpose being that they would receive power to go out in the power of the Spirit to be his witnesses. Acts 1.8 is said to be the key that unlocks the door of Acts and the gates of Christianity. Acts 1.8 represents the last known words that are said of Jesus during his earthly ministry. And then we read on in verse 9. Verse 9, we're told that having said these things, he ascended to the Father. So the first thing I wanted to look at this morning is what is Christ's work for us? What is Christ's work for us? All Christians, all Christians are commanded to be witnesses of Christ. And Jesus in this text, notice he says, my witnesses. It's not going out and testifying of the church. It's not going out and testifying of Grace Church. It's not going out sovereign grace. It's testifying Jesus. Jesus, witnesses of Jesus. You'll be my witnesses, speaking of Christ. These men who had been with Jesus over three years had heard his teaching. They'd seen his miracles. They were there in his crucifixion and had experienced on many occasions his appearing following his resurrection. These men, after receiving the Holy Spirit, Jesus now said to them, you are to go and be my witnesses, telling people about Christ and his work of salvation. They're witnessing was, as we see from Paul, was to reflect that which is of most importance. Paul speaks of that. That which is of most importance, that Christ died for our sins. And then he says, according to the scriptures. The apostles, as I said, saw firsthand Christ's death and res resurrection. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, to those who were not present, still for them to be witnesses, according to the scriptures. So for us who were not present 2,000 years ago, although one or two questioned me, but wasn't there, our witness, our testimony of Christ needs to be according to the scriptures. According to what we think, or what philosophers think, but what the scriptures tell us. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of us of being ambassadors. So we're witnesses, but he speaks of us being ambassadors. And what's an ambassador? Ambassador is a, a representative for someone else or for some organisation. And as witnesses, we tell people about Jesus. And I would suggest as ambassadors, we not only speak about Jesus, but we are to be representatives of Jesus. And that being reflected in the way we live our lives. So we're not just speaking it, but we're working it out. Jesus says in the Gospel that people, the Gospel of John, 
John, that people will know we are Christ's disciples by the way we love one another. That has always, to me, been an extremely powerful text. Extremely powerful. In the early days, when people got saved and in, 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 in 2,000 years ago and they lived in perhaps courtyard settings and somebody got saved or family got saved, they would be seen as families who were Christians, head on, as it were, in your face, how they love one another. But we live in our little boxes, all separated all over the place. So we need not only to do it, but find, I believe, contexts and ways where people will see it. Ray Ortland, speaking about this statement of Jesus, says, building a community that examples this command is in itself mission. It gives mission credibility. And he speaks about focusing on Christ as our priority, our community, and then our mission. Now, it's not, it's not saying we have to get the community all right before we mission. It's, it's, it's overlapping. It's not as simple as that. Some of you might remember this. Years ago, I, I wore a badge. You may have worn a badge that, that we, we had to wear. Well, had to wear. didn't have to, I suppose. But it's save to serve. Any of you remember that? Save to serve. And as I've got older, I've realised I'm not sure it's quite right. I think it's saved to be, to serve. There's something about how we are that will be a witness to others. So Christ's work in being a witness, telling others about him, and being an ambassador for him, is to be living like him. And to be a loving community of people that unbelievers will look on and identify us through our love for one another. Through our love for one another, not our love for Jesus. Our love for Jesus will reflect in our love for one another. And therefore, therefore by doing so, point people to Christ. Secondly, then, how do we do Christ's work? Well, the emphasis in our text this morning would point, point us to see that in doing Christ's work, we need Christ's power. And the source of power for us doing Christ's work is Christ himself. Here we read, but you will see power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. He's saying, wait, wait until you've been baptised, wait until you've received the Holy Spirit and then go out and be witnesses. So here, set before us in this in this text is the divine order that in receiving the Holy Spirit, they would receive the power, enabling them to go in God's power and not in their strength to be witnesses of Christ. And I would suggest that's the same for us today. That's the same, that in receiving the Holy Spirit, we would receive the power, enabling us to go in God's power, not in our own strength, to be Christ's witnesses. When we accept Jesus in our as our Lord and Saviour, we don't have to wait like the apostles to receive the Holy Spirit. At salvation, we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we have been baptised by the Holy Spirit, and therefore we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is not the same as having the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples had to wait until chapter 2 where we read of Pentecost and that initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that same order to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation 
and then be witnesses is the same for us. And we know from what Paul says that even though we're, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, born again by the Spirit of God, Paul encourages us in Ephesians 5 to be filled with the Spirit, not filled with wine, not filled with wine, not filled with wine, but with the Holy Spirit. What does he mean? Because we've said we've been baptised, we've said we're already Holy Spirit's with us. But what Paul is encouraging us is that constant infilling of the Holy Spirit. The sense of that encouragement in Ephesians 5 is a continuous sense. Continue to be filled in the Holy Spirit. So obviously he, he's thinking of further fillings of the Holy Spirit. It's more than just what takes place at, at salvation. And when Paul speaks here of continually being filled, he is not referring to the gifts of the Spirit. He's not saying, be constantly filled in the Spirit so you, do, you speak in tongues or you prophesy or you, you heal people. Excuse me. That may be the case. But that's not what he's primarily talking about here. What he's talking about here, that we're to be filled with Christ. The fullness of Christ. Filled with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit for doing the work of Christ and living lives that will represent him. So as Christians, how do we do this? How, 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 how does that work then? We, we recognise that at salvation we're filled with the Spirit, but how, how, do, how do we go on? How do we fulfil this instruction that Paul is giving us? I would suggest we do this by prayer. We do this by prayer of waiting on God for many fillings. I, I remember as a, a boy running, I believe I could run then, to the meetings every single day of the week for a few weeks to get filled with the Spirit because I thought it was a separate thing. I don't believe that now. But there was a desire to go and wait on God to receive from God. And I have to say, I have many experiences. My pastor said I wasn't baptised in the Spirit because he believed until I spoke in tongues that wouldn't be the case. But I had many experiences in God during that time. So when we, 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 we need to go to God regularly and ask for fresh fillings. I was just thinking, I was thinking about this. We don't have to queue up. We don't have to queue up at a station and get in line. Oh, I've got to wait until Matt's filled. I've got to wait until Pete's filled. I've got to wait until filled. We can all go. We can all go all the time, every day. Because God doesn't ration his Holy Spirit. But he does as we read in Luke 11 verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That text is often used for other things. That text is about the Holy Spirit. That text is about receiving the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells us that our Heavenly Father, if we seek him and earnestly ask him, he will give us the Holy Spirit. You see, being a Christian is not just doing Christ's work. It's not a matter of just being saved and then simply working hard. I found this, I have been recently really blessed by a number of readings of Francis Schaeffer. And he says this, the central problem of our age 
is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus that surrounds us. And if you don't understand what that bit is, go and ask Matt, he'll tell All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. Read that. Uh, any of you interested in that quote, I'll send it to you, but I was just so challenged. So challenged. He goes on to say the central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. It is so important, as Schaefer is saying here, that we don't try and do Christ's work in the flesh. I love this as well. Francis Schaeffer also said this, speaking about one aspect of our lives. He says, you can either be bold and direct in the flesh, or you can be patient, soft, and gentle in the flesh. But you can only be both in the spirit. I love that. Because sometimes people think, if you, you know, if you, you're patient and, 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 and you're gentle and soft, perhaps that's in the spirit, but when you're bold and direct, that's, that's in the flesh. But he's saying... Now you can do both in the spirit. I love that. And we read in Matthew's gospel that Jesus, before he commenced his earthly ministry, he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. So again, he sets out the example, he sets out the lead for us. And as Christians, we must understand something of our need for spiritual power to do the work of Christian ministry. If we don't see the need, and don't seek the Holy Spirit, and we try to do everything under our own strength, which I've been guilty of, we will not move forward, and our works will become dead works. Our need of the Holy Spirit is a consistent need. It's not a matter of saying, I experienced or I knew the power of the Holy Spirit years ago, or even yesterday. But as Paul encourages us, do not be filled with wine, but with the Holy Spirit in that continuous sense. It is our constant need if we're going to do Christ's work effectively. And therefore we need to see our dependency, our dependency daily on the Holy Spirit. And our constant cry in prayer should be, Lord, fill me anew. Years ago we used to sing, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Fill me in you. Fill me in you. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Simple but profound words for all of us. I wonder this morning, is that your heart's cry? Do you recognise your need for fresh filling? Well, I know at least one in the room does. My challenge is so often thinking I can do things in my own strength. Not giving enough time in prayer to receive. To find myself thanking God in prayer and petitioning God in prayer, but not giving enough time, as Matt was speaking recently, about communing with God. Waiting on God. Receiving from God. Fresh power by the Holy Spirit. 
And for myself, and I believe as a church, individually and corporately, we need to grow in prayer. We need to call upon God frequently to be freshly endured by the Holy Spirit so that everything that we do, everything that we do, is clothed in prayer, anointed by the Holy Spirit. Too often I think, I don't have time to pray, I'm busy, I've got to get on with this. Foolishly forgetting that if I prayed, I would probably do the job a lot better, but certainly I would trust it would be in the spirit and not in the flesh. If we put, if we put activity, even good activity, at the centre before prayer, then even those activities may well be done in the power of the flesh rather than in the power of the spirit. So doing Christ's work in Christ's power requires us to see our need of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, giving and spending time in prayer and asking for grace and power, power not for us, but power of the Holy Spirit, that our work for Christ will bring glory to Jesus rather than glory to us. And then finally, what does doing Christ's work in Christ's power and Christ's way look like? What was Christ's way? Let's look at Jesus. It's impossible to summarise this in in the time we have, there's so much that we could learn just in seeing um, how Jesus lived upon the earth. But how was his ministry upon the earth characterised? As I said earlier, being a Christian means being a follower of Christ, being a disciple of Christ, not just in name, but in action. So what do we see in Christ that we can learn from? How to do his work in his power and in his way? Well, I believe Philippians 2 gives us a clue that it tells us that Christ's heart and mind was to humbly, in humble obedience, he would humble himself to death, even death on a cross. And Paul exhorts us just before he speaks of that, of us as followers of Christ, to let this same mind, this same heart be in us. Humility should be the goal of every Christian. And it should stand out in the same way that Jesus exampled on earth. If we want to know something of the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to grow and develop humility in our lives. And I say that to all of us. Because if we think we, we're humble, <laughs> the very statement will challenge you. James 4 says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And pride is clearly a daily battle in my life. Every day, almost without exception, I confess to the Lord pride. One of the things I'm trying to do, I'm trying to grow in, because I'm aware of pride in so many different ways that it takes in our lives. Try to be more specific in that area of pride so it's not just generic. So I say that, we can all say that probably all the time. There are as many ways pride is evident in all our lives. And it's an area of our lives that we will do battle with until we get to glory. But there's always grace. There's always grace. God gives grace to the humble. But the scriptures also say that he opposes the proud. So if we're going to grow in humility, 
One of the things, as I said, there's so much on this subject we can talk about, we don't have time. One of the things we need to do is to confess pride. In Matthew 23, verses 8 to 12, we read of the situation of Jesus addressing the disciples and preparing them for ministry. And he tells them, very he tells them not to call yourself rabbi. Because the people around at that time would see rabbi, or, you know, kind of teacher, higher up the scale, as it were. He says, don't call yourself rabbi, which means teacher. For you all have one teacher, and you're all brothers. All brothers. He was saying, don't set yourself above. Don't set yourself, I'm a rabbi or I'm a teacher or whatever. And in verse 12, he summarizes these verses by saying, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I believe the natural and sinful tendency of man is to reverse that order that Jesus encourages us. We tend to want to exhort ourselves. When I was saying the other day that Paul was a few weeks back about Paul's thorn in the flesh and, uh, and, and his experience in, in the third heaven and he said, I, 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 I don't want to speak too much about this because I don't want you to think more highly of me than you are. I'd have to say, hands up, I want you to think more highly of me than you are. But it's not the right way. When we seek the highest place, we contradict and go against this divine order. You know, even when we have an office, and by an office I mean being a parent, being a church leader. It is only the office that sets us apart. None of us, none of us are greater than those we have authority or responsibility for. Francis Schaeffer speaks of if we want position and to be the foremost, we're not qualified for any form of Christian leadership, any area of Christian leadership, if that's what we want. The warning of Scripture is clear that we must either humble ourselves now or be humbled in the future. In Mark 9, verse 35, Jesus says, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Humility isn't something we put on when we need to do some serving. We need to operate in a particular way, perhaps any area of church life, any service in church life. It's a way of viewing ourselves and others that will allow us to serve effectively. It is a worldview all on its own, which impacts on every area of life. But it starts in the attitude we have about ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, he who would learn to serve must first learn to think little of himself. Humility doesn't just happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen just because we're around other humble people. That, that would be a benefit. That would be a strength. Help to us. It doesn't just happen. We need to learn humility. Jerry Bridges writes this, Remember, the Spirit does not make us humble, but he enables us to humble ourselves. We must learn humility. But however, this, this learning is not seeing little ourselves in a morbid sort of way, which we demean ourselves. It's allowing our revelation of God's greatness and his grace towards us to go on the way we think about ourselves. 
James 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. C.J. Mahaney writes in his book on humility. If you haven't got the book, I encourage you to get it. Listen again, he says this. Listen again to what Jesus said in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Saviour here is clarifying for his disciples the difference between his example and theirs. He is emphasising the, unique, the uniqueness of his own sacrifice. He's telling them not only that true greatness is attained by emulating his example, but also that true greatness is not even possible apart from the Saviour's unique sacrifice. Speaking about true greatness, humility, that is true greatness. But he reminds us in this, his example was, this was his, let me go back, he's telling them not only that true greatness is attained by emulating his example, but also that true greatness is not even possible for us apart from the Saviour's unique sacrifice. It's only because of Christ's sacrifice that it's possible for us to grow in humility and achieve true greatness. C.J. goes on to say, ultimately, our Christian service, I love this, our Christian service only exists only to draw attention to this source, to our crucified and risen Lord who gave himself as a ransom for us all. In preparing this message, I am only too aware that in this one sermon, I find myself challenged in three of the most significant areas of my life. My lack of witnessing, my lack in prayer, and the existence of pride. But there is grace. So having heard this this morning, if you're starting to think, you know, messages on witnessing, messages on prayer, messages on pride, uh, can be a bit difficult. But if you're feeling that conviction anyway, there's grace. And God gives grace to humble. When we put ourselves in the position where we come before him and, and bow the knee, as it were, there is grace. If you identify with me this morning, don't be condemned. But let us together humbly confess our need and he will give us grace. Let's gaze afresh upon our Saviour, seeing as Andrew Murray writes, Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. He is the eternal love humbling himself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. I would suggest these some of the ways that we do Christ's work in Christ's power and in Christ's way. I want to finish with the last verse of the poem, Give Tongues of Fire. O Son of Man, O Son of God, whose love brought all men by his blood, give us thy mind, thy soul's desire, thy heart of love, thy tongue of fire, that we thy gospel may proclaim to every man thy great name. O crucified, and risen Lord, give tongues of fire to preach thy word. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that you have called us all into your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross in our place, paying our debt. And thank you, Lord, that you've, you've given us the task of not only being your witnesses, but providing a wonderful example of how we're to do that. Lord, forgive us when we fail to witness. When we try to do things in our own strength, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Lord, forgive us for our pride. And Father, this morning we ask that you will fill us afresh by your Spirit so that we might serve you in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you a question this morning. Is that your prayer this morning for a fresh filling? If it is, I'd like us just quietly quietly before God call upon him now and ask ask for fresh filling he is faithful he will fill us doesn't have to be extraordinarily loud or any particular way just quietly before him now this atmosphere of worship let's let's call upon him <laughs>